You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. Have you been naughty or nice? If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual... It's Christmas Day. This year Christmas fell on a Tuesday. That's the day the new Savage Lovecasts come out. And I want to wish a very Merry Christmas to everyone out there who celebrates Christmas. And I hope everybody out there who doesn't celebrate Christmas isn't being made too miserable by all of us motherfuckers who do. It's not officially Christmas at my house, though, until I've baked all the cookies. Terry and I have had our annual fight about who's going to dust the baseboards. But really... We know it's Christmas when this song comes on the playlist and Terry and I drop whatever we're doing, whatever we're fighting about, whatever we're baking, and stand in the kitchen and sing along. You're a bum, you're a punk, you're an old slut and juggler, and they're almost dead on a trip and I bite. You scumbag, you mugger, cheap, cheap, lousy, fucker, tubby Christmas, you're all sorry, like God, it's all love. That's when Christmas officially comes to my house, when Terry and I have stopped everything that we're doing, the arguments we're having, the cookies we're baking, the decorating we're doing, to stand in the kitchen and shout those lyrics at each other. You scumbag, you maggot, you cheap, lousy faggot, happy Christmas, you're ours, I pray God it's our last. You know, there are people out there, people who host television programs on Fox News, who assert really without any evidence, that there is a war on Christmas, that there are people out there making war on Christmas who would like to end Christmas. And they point their bony fingers at people like me, lefties, progressives, particularly gays, as if we hate Christmas for some reason, as if we would have cause to hate Christmas. I can't speak for all lefties and progressives, but I can speak on behalf of the gays, I think, at least where this is concerned. What's not gay about Christmas? What's not for gay people to love about Christmas? What are decorated presents but boxes in drag? What's a Christmas tree but a tree in drag? What's Christmas decorations all over the house and outside the house but our house in drag? Christmas is camp. It's shiny and bright and sparkly and tinsel. And I've always loved it. Ever since I was a little kid, I've loved Christmas and we keep Christmas at our house and we always have. We have a big party. We have lots of people over. We serve a lot of delicious food. And I think one of the reasons these conservatives want to put it out there that we hate Christmas is that they want to own this idea of, of family. They want to own this idea of love and, and friendship somehow because that's really what Christmas is about. It's coming together with all of the people you love, your family, your friends at the darkest time of the year and celebrating the year that's passed, celebrating the year that is to come, and creating joy at a moment when really the world is asleep. And also creating joy at this particular political moment when the world seems to be imperiled. And you know, conservatives, they don't own family, and they don't own love, and they don't own friends, and they don't own Christmas. It belongs to anybody who wants to celebrate it. I know that not everybody celebrates Christmas. So this is a happy Christmas going out to everyone who celebrates. And I hope you got through it in one piece to everybody who has to endure Christmas, who doesn't celebrate Christmas. 
but family, friends, love, home, which is really for me what Christmas is all about. That belongs to us all. The right does not own that. And Christmas, which, you know, originally was a sort of a solstice celebration. It's the darkest time of the year and the fields are fallow and the trees are bare. So we're going to have this big feast and we're going to light everything up to remind ourselves of what abundance feels like and to celebrate, again, the year past and to anticipate the love and connection and community and joy and abundance in the year coming. That's a deep-seated human need that has no tie to any particular faith tradition. There's just different ways of dressing it up. And we keep Christmas in our house. And for us, Christmas is about celebrating family, friends, but also celebrating the year that just ended, marking the end of this year and looking forward to the year coming, looking forward to the new year. And there's a gift coming for all of us in the new year, and that is the Democrats taking control of the House of Representatives. We all worked hard to give that gift to each other in 2018. And because we did the work, 2019 is going to be a little brighter. I feel like we're going to turn a corner. I feel like it is going to be, if not a happy new year, a happier new year. 2019 is going to be a better year than 2018 was because we did the work and we earned this. We earned this break. We earned this celebration. We earned these cocktails. We earned these cookies. We earned these songs. And I hope you're having on this day a wonderful Christmas, again, if you celebrate, or a chill day if you don't. And I want to thank everyone who listens. I want to thank everyone who calls in and trusts me with your problems, your questions, your fears. And I look forward to spending every Tuesday with you in the coming new year. Merry Christmas, everybody who celebrates, and Happy New Year to everyone. Dan, I recently entered a very fast relationship that has ended in the trauma that I'm currently experiencing. Within the span of four months, I met a girl who and still believe was my one person in this world, my soulmate, had the same goals, same sexual drive, the amount of fun, inside jokes, very smart, driven, and beyond beautiful. We both fell in love in the first couple of weeks, and it really escalated from there. We both had her baggage, her an ex-dancer, and had an affair with a married man before meeting me, and dead guys in their upper 40s. We were both currently in our early 30s, and her wanting to settle down and working on changing. Myself, I've gone through two divorces, both ended from their infidelity and myself looking for that family life. I was supposed to be that guy who was different from the rest, as I was intelligent, sweet, nerdy, kind, and in touch with my emotions. Within the first three weeks, she introduced me to her daughter, who was six, and I had an instant bond with and instantly improved her life, both emotionally and from having a male role model around. Within the first month, I moved in to her place five hours away. We got matching tattoos. I put my house up for sale, and... We also started looking at a house together. We got engaged, and uh, we started a plan to have our own kid of our own. We got pregnant shortly thereafter. Fast forward a little bit. She's about six, or I'm sorry, she's about 10 weeks pregnant. Uh, I blamed her pregnancy hormones, but she thought it was more than that. She started pulling away, barely giving me any affection and attention. When I brought it up, she told me I was needy and needed space. Uh, the day right before Thanksgiving, we got into an argument, and she asked me to move back out to the state, to the state that I came from. I agreed so we could think through problems. And then the following day in Thanksgiving, she sent me an email note talking about why she's breaking up with me, calling off the engagement, and she decided to have an abortion that following day. Her note really focused on my neediness, being too emotional, my insecurities, and some of the white lies that I used to say for embellishments to make myself seem better than what I really was. Some of it is true. Others I don't really agree with. So in the span of four months, we went from one of the best relationships, time, and adventure that I've ever been on in my entire life on 
and ending with her taking that away from me, taking away her, my future stepdaughter, and now my future kid. Obviously, we move way too fast and I'm learning from this, but it's really hard to process what's just happened to me over the course of the last week or two. And I'd just like your opinion or advice on the situation. Introducing your daughter to the boyfriend that you've only been dating for six weeks is a sign of bad judgment. Moving from the state where you live to the state where the person you just started dating lives and selling your house and getting engaged within a month, also a sign of bad judgment. There's so much bad judgment flying around here, I don't even know where to begin. You fell for this woman and you fell hard and she fell for you and it seems that she fell hard and you both, it seems, took leave of your senses You were in the infatuation stage where anything seems possible and when you're in the throes of that kind of new love, you need to say to yourself, of course I want to introduce you to my daughter at this point, but I'm not going to because I hardly know you. All I know is that I'm completely crushed out on you and that isn't grounded in who you really are as a person because at six weeks I don't really know who you are as a person. So in a way that feeling of infatuation, that giddy new love is hope. I hope you're all these things that right now I believe you to be or believe that you could be. And so I want to do things that I shouldn't do. I want to say I love you. I want to do to my daughter. I want to move in. I want to get engaged. I want to get pregnant and make a baby within four months of having met you. And vice versa, you on the flip side of all of that. I want to move and meet your daughter and I want to get engaged and I want to make a baby with you. You were both doing things at four months and at three months and at two months and at six weeks and at one month and at two weeks that when you're infatuated and you're in the throes of new love, you want to do. But then the smarter part of your brain intercedes and says, yeah, no, of course there's that impulse But you don't really know this person well enough yet to commit to them at six weeks, at two months, at four months. And so here you are in your early 30s, married and divorced twice already, and you need to back the fuck up. You need to learn the lesson that you didn't learn in your first marriage and didn't learn in your second marriage, which is this shit has to be taken slowly, that a rush to commit A premature commitment, not in all cases, but in almost all cases, is a bad idea, is getting out over your skis, is demonstrating to that person and that person perhaps demonstrating to you at the same time that you both have fatal cases of bad fucking judgment and this most likely is not going to end well and it didn't. It didn't end well. It's over. She decided that you're not the person that she wants to be with. She came to her senses a little bit quicker than you did. Possible that you would have decided that she wasn't the person you wanted to be with a year and the birth of an infant from now. It's probably better for all concerned that she came to the realization that she did now. Going forward, she needs to not introduce guys she just started dating to her daughter at six weeks. That's something you do at six months or 18 months or two years. You don't do that at six weeks. And you need to learn some lessons here too. That as strongly as you believe you might feel about someone, you just don't know them well enough 
at four months, three months, two months, six weeks, a month, two weeks, to move to a new state to live with them or to propose to them or to scramble your DNA together with that person's. I'm sorry you're hurting. I'm sorry there's an edge in my voice that, of impatience, but you're, you're making the mistakes that people make at 16 and 17 and 18 and you are in your 30s and twice divorced and you should have more sense now than you've demonstrated in the last four months. I'm really sorry that you're hurt by how this turned out. I'm really sorry for that six-year-old girl who's being jerked around by the adults in her life in a way that is unfair to her. So this relationship is over and you're going to go into your next relationship and you're going to tell yourself no premature commitments, no rush to marry, no rush to move in together. That if the next person I date has small children and they want to introduce me to that kid at six weeks, I'm going to say, you know, no, 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 no. My last relationship, I met and bonded with my ex's daughter at six weeks and it was emotionally traumatizing to me to then have that relationship cut off. And I'm sure it was emotionally traumatizing to that kid to have me disappeared the way that I was disappeared. So yeah, we're not going to do that. That's a dumb, foolish thing to do. And I'm in my early 30s. I've been in two marriages and in one broken engagement and I am done doing dumb, foolish things. I'm going to take shit slow. And I am not going to make major decisions about where I'm going to live or what houses I'm going to sell in the throes of infatuation, in the throes of new love. Those are the decisions you make after you know what that person's farts smell like. Those are the sorts of decisions you make after you've had your first knockdown, drag out, relationship extinction level event kind of fights. And it is the sense of the Senate here at Savage Lovecast Incorporated. The tech-savvy at-risk youth convened a subcommittee and had a vote. And they believe, and I am endorsing, that you should probably get into therapy. There are strands in all of the relationships you've been in as an adult that you need to tease out. There are patterns that you need to identify to protect yourself and the others around you going forward so that you don't find yourself in this position again. So you don't keep stepping on the same rake. Hi, Dan. My name is Brian, 36-year-old gay man calling from the Northeast. I have a question about anal sex. I have turned into quite the power bottom lately, and my ability to take bigger dicks is surprising myself, actually. I was a top throughout most of my 20s, but now I'm finding myself more of a power bottom with switching back and forth from time to time. But the nature of my question is in regards to anal orgasms and peeing. I get to a certain point where the top is pounding and I feel like I'm having an orgasm. However, I'm basically peeing all over the place. It happened a couple different times. Once I was very embarrassed because I was not home. It was somebody else's bed, but the top seemed to find it hot. And I question whether or not that is a normal thing. Can you give me a little bit more insight and tell me if it's a mixture of my orgasm with urinating while having anal intercourse? A normal thing? No. No, it's not a normal thing. Is it a terrible thing? No. Not if you enjoy the sensation. Not if the top enjoys it, enjoys watching you lose control in that particular way and doesn't mind having to change the sheets and wash the comforters. It's not a terrible thing, not a bad thing. 
Why is this happening now? Well, you're taking much bigger dicks. Many people find it uncomfortable to have intercourse, anal or otherwise, with a full bladder. Others don't. It could just be that you're reaching a kind of intense, overwhelming, pleasurable sensation and your bladder chooses that moment to evacuate. Again, not a problem if you don't regard it as a problem, not necessarily a sign that anything medically is wrong, but something you're going to want to warn other tops about. Now that you know that you have this particular superpower, you might want to let the next guy know, the next guy with a giant dick where you're going to have a long power bottoming session, you might want to let him know that this is a known known. This is a thing that could happen. This is a thing that does happen when you're incredibly aroused and it's really great. And so maybe he might want to fuck you on the floor instead. Hi, Dan. I'm a 42-year-old bisexual cis female in a happy monogamous marriage with a man. We've been together for 18 years. Our relationship is great and we spend about half of every week apart with him living in one country in Europe and me in another. We love this arrangement as it gives us time for being alone or with our own friends as well as flirtations and other adventures. I'm calling though about something my husband would like to do. We don't have children and I literally wake up every day feeling grateful for my decision to not have kids. He, however, for quite a few years has talked about a desire to have kids, but not actually to raise them, just to spread his seed, as you will. To have kids and to know they exist and that they are in a good family situation. That's all he wants. Recently, he was introduced to a lesbian couple in the same country where he's living. They're looking for a sperm, a sperm donor to have two children with. We've spoken a couple times, and they are wonderful, educated, intelligent, and just seem like all-around great potential parents. My husband is overjoyed at this prospect, as are they. I'm the only one in the equation who is still unsure. Their idea is that once the children are a few years old, if they want to meet their biological father, they can. And presumably, if the children and the father want to, they could start a relationship. The mothers don't actually want much of a relationship to bloom, and my husband isn't really dying for it either. I just can't shake the idea that he and the kids will create a strong bond, which, granted, would be wonderful for them, but I'm worried, especially with the proximity of where they live, about a three-hour train ride, that this could develop into a situation where I'm put into a position of stepmother. I have no interest whatsoever in any parenting. Really, the most I'd be okay with is a couple of times a year in a sort of aunt situation. Anyway, I've been struggling for a few weeks trying to decide if I can be okay with this risk. I would love to be able to wholeheartedly approve this arrangement but it, because it would make my husband so happy. And not to mention, I don't even feel that it's very ethical to stand in the way of this biological pull he is feeling. Dan, can you help me reason through this? Considering that you don't live full-time with your husband, that you see each other roughly every other week, avoiding the step-parent role if he develops a close bond with these children, which my hunch is he won't. If he's not going to meet these kids until they're toddlers, if he's not going to meet these kids until they express an interest in meeting their biological father, I don't necessarily think an overwhelming bond, particularly when the kids are young, when they require parenting, will develop. But even in the worst-case scenario – he meets them when they're three years old and they develop this instant bond and they want to spend weekends with dad. 
those don't have to be the weekends that you and dad are together. Those don't have to be the weekends that dad's wife happens to be visiting. You can schedule his parental time if, if indeed he ends up playing any sort of parental role in the lives of these children during those weeks or months that you aren't around. I know people who've done informal sperm donor relationships, done it on a handshake, and there are risks there. There are cases where guys have donated sperm and it, they weren't supposed to play any sort of parental role or have any parental responsibilities and one or the other mothers sued later and required them to pay child support. There are also cases where the sperm donor asserted their rights as father and parent for visitation, violating the handshake agreement that they'd made with the couple to be really hands-off or not really to have anything to do with the kids. So whatever your husband decides to do, my advice for him would be to get it in writing and to consult with a lawyer and make sure that whatever agreement they hammer out is legally enforceable so that he isn't on the hook and that they aren't on the hook to make sure that whatever agreement that they come to is legally enforceable, is recognized, is notarized, that everyone signed on the dotted line and there's no ambiguity going forward. And now getting back to you and your concerns, I think they're valid and anything could happen. The moms could leave the kids with your husband for a week because they want to go on holiday and they could go on holiday and never come back because their plane crashed. And then he's a parent. And then what? Then you're going to be cast into this parent role. But that's really highly unlikely. That is what they call a low probability, high consequence for you event. And while we have to factor low probability, high consequence events into our decision making, we can't be paralyzed by low probability, high consequence events because then we would never fucking leave the house. So I think you should give your husband your blessing to be a sperm donor for this other couple. And you are highly unlikely to be sucked into a stepmother role in these children's lives. Even if you lived full-time with your husband, it would be highly unlikely. Considering that you don't live full-time with your husband, even if he wound up playing some sort of parental role, which itself is highly unlikely, you would be able to sidestep that parental role pretty easily. Hi, Dan. I'm a cisgendered female living on the West Coast. I'm in my early 30s, and I recently started dating a guy. He's pretty awesome. Um, we're getting to know each other sexually, and I recently asked him whether or not he'd be interested in using toys. Um, he responded with really hesitantly, basically saying that he's never used toys, and I told him that I have some. He said that he would not be open to using any type of toy if I had used it in a previous relationship. Now, these are toys that I've used, like a vibrator and a dildo and anal plugs and things like that, where all of these would be penetrating me. Basically, the only portion of the toy that he would be in contact where any ex would have also touched would just be a handle. So I'm really torn about whether or not I need to discard all of my previously obtained and somewhat pricey sex toys just to please this guy that I'm dating in hopes that he'll use some newly bought sex toys on me. Um, what's your advice, Dan? Do you think new boyfriend, new sex toys? I'm ready to start advising people never to throw away the packaging that their sex toys come in so that when a new partner objects to using sex toys that have been used with previous partners, you can just put it all back into its original packaging and pretend that all your sex toys are brand new sex toys. This is ridiculous. So long as a sex toy is sterilized, as long as you have high quality silicone sex toys that can be sterilized, 
you shouldn't have to discard them every time you get a new partner or get new ones every time you get a new partner. We use the same old genitals on the new partner that we used on the previous partner. We lick them with the same tongue we licked the previous partner with. People don't require us to get new tongues and new genitals with each new partner. They require us to bathe. They require us to brush our fucking teeth and brush our fucking tongue too. Not to throw them away. Well, you can bathe your sex toys. You can wash them and sterilize them. And you should be able to use them with a new partner. Usually the objections come from the person that the sex toy is being inserted into. This is a rare call, a rare case where the objection is the inserter, not the insertee. That said, don't throw away your sex toys. And draw a line with your partner. I'm not going to throw them away for the same reason I'm not going to throw away my pussy and for the same reason I'm not asking you to throw away your dick. The one thing you might want to do with this guy, new partner, never used a sex toy before, a little squicked out. He may have said that he was uncomfortable using these sex toys because they've been used with others when what he meant was he's just uncomfortable using sex toys at all and doesn't want to use sex toys at all. And this is a way for him to sidestep the issue by pretending that he has qualms or that it sandpapers his insecurities to use these toys that have been used with others because then he's going to think about all the other people that you've had sex with that he somehow doesn't have to think about while he's using your vagina that all these other people got to use too with his dick but whatever to call his bluff what you do is you go buy one more sex toy a brand new sex toy i'm sure there are sex toys out there that you would like that you don't have who doesn't need an extra butt plug Go get another butt plug or go get another dildo or vibrator to add to your collection and present it to him as your brand new one that's just for him and just for you guys to bond with and use together. And then if he refuses, the problem is sex toys at all. He doesn't want to use sex toys at all. But if he embraces it and uses it, maybe he will get over his objections to the sex toys that you already have. The new one might help him acclimate to the whole idea of sex toys. Because jumping back, if his problem is he doesn't want to have to use a sex toy, he may be one of those people who feels like using a sex toy means that they're inadequate, that they don't have what it takes to get you off all by themselves, that they didn't arrive with everything that you need in their pants. Rather than regarding sex toys as an addition, an enhancement, another way to pleasure each other and enjoy sex and sex play together. And getting that first toy just for him may help him see sex toys are not the enemy, that they are the enhancement, that they are something that two people can share and enjoy together. And then once he sees that, he should hopefully calm down about the sex toys that you already possess. Hi, Dan and Nancy and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. Um, I'm calling to get advice about helping uh, to get my friend out of a severely abusive relationship. Um, I've only known this friend for a few months, but we got pretty close pretty quickly. Um, and I really care about her and her well-being. Um, anyway, this friend uh, has been in this abusive relationship for what it sounds like over two years. Um, Apparently, her parents and friends had an intervention around a year or a year and a half ago uh, to get her away from this guy after he beat her up and tried to run over her with his car, seriously injuring her and putting her in the hospital. (laughs) So apparently since then, uh, she's been on and off with him saying things like, when it's good, it's so good. And when it's bad, it's just really bad. 
you know, I mean, I've been in abusive relationships and I know how hard it is to extract yourself from the manipulation and how you compartmentalize the conflict. But the other week she called me saying that he was beating her up again and verbally abusing her for hours on a long car ride. And after that, she's still seeing him, despite me and her other close friends getting angry with her for seeing him. I'm starting to question her judgment and wonder if this is someone I want to be friends with. But this girl's life is in danger. Like, this guy tried to kill her. I don't want to abandon her, but how do me and her friends and her family get through to her? Help, Dan. I'm afraid for her safety. You've known this person, known this woman this victim for three months, a few months, and you got pretty close pretty quickly. Sounds like she sucked you in. Sounds like she recruited you or drafted you because she needed new close friends to worry about her, new close friends to be concerned about her, to, to, to worry about her safety because other friends got sick of it, got sick of the game, the sick, twisted game that she is playing and the risks that she insists on running by remaining in this relationship despite the interventions, despite knowing better. The dude ran her over with his car and tried to kill her. How come the dude isn't in fucking prison? You know, at a certain point, you have to look at somebody who insists on jumping off a building over and over and over again and you say to them, all right, I keep trying to stop you from getting in the elevator and going to the top of this building and jumping off, but you keep insisting on getting in the elevator and going to the top of the building and jumping off, so I'm just not going to waste my breath anymore. You're a new friend. I bet she has lots of old friends who've walked away because they weren't being heard. You're a new friend. I bet she has lots of old friends who have cut her off, walked away, abandoned her, to use your word. And sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes... Our friends can intervene and our friends can intervene and on some level, the victim is enjoying being the center of that kind of attention, is enjoying the concern and the worry of their friends, the concern and the worry that they are instilling in their friends by continuing to press their face against the scalding hot stove, by refusing to get out of this relationship that they know damn well that they have to get out of for their own sake. And it sounds terrible. She's the victim here. But there are people who allow themselves to be victimized. There are people who are complicit in their own victimization because they are getting something out of it. And often what they're getting is attention. Usually what they're getting is attention. It's a terrible reason to stay in an abusive relationship, to, to, to seek attention. But it is a reason that some people do. Some people remain in shitty circumstances, refuse to help themselves, refuse to accept help. And the point comes where people get sick of offering that help and stop offering that help and they are abandoned by their friends and family and that means hitting a kind of bottom. Sometimes the abandonment of the people who danced attendance upon you when you were being abused again by the person who abused you before, the person who ran you over the fucking car before, the abandonment is what opens your eyes. The abandonment is what inspires that person to finally fucking get the hell out of that relationship. I have been in your shoes. It is incredibly frustrating. Some people are bent on their own destruction. We've all had friends that we've watched destroy themselves with alcohol or with drugs, sex, sometimes with relationships, in relationships, destroy themselves in a relationship. 
And you can't help someone who refuses to be helped. And that's insanely frustrating. You can't kidnap your friend. You can't have her committed. And you feel terrible when you just walk away from someone. When they're pressing their face against that scalding hot stove again and you turn and walk out of the room, you feel terrible. But sometimes there's nothing else that you can do except walk the fuck out of that room and hope that person follows you out. I realize this is perhaps sounding a little harsh, sounding a little unsympathetic. We have a responsibility as friends, we have responsibilities as family members to reach out and help our friends and family who are in shitty relationships and dire circumstances, who are abusing drugs, abusing alcohol, or being abused by a shitty partner. And your new friends, old friends and family have fulfilled that responsibility. They have stepped up. They have staged interventions. They have tried and tried. And it hasn't worked. And so perhaps it's time to try something different, which is to stop staging interventions, to stop reasoning with this person who will not listen to reason and walk away from this person. And when you walk away from someone in a situation like that, you tell them what you're doing. You don't just ghost. You don't just disappear. You say, I can't be party to this anymore. I feel like I am codependent. I feel like I am enabling this behavior by being there for you in the way that you would like me to be there for you. So I am not going to be there for you. I'm going to be over there for you. I'm going to be over there waiting for you. And when you are ready to get the fuck out of this relationship, I will be there to help. I'll be over there, not right here, not by your side, not right now. I will be over there waiting when you wake up, when it is time to go, when you want to accept the help that's on offer, call me, but not until then. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old woman living in a fairly conservative town in the U.S. Um, I'm currently in a degree program uh, for education, and it's made me a little bit more nervous about exploring the community where I live I just don't want potential employers or potential parents of students that I'll have in the future to be aware of this. Um, I've found a community that seems maybe interesting to me that's having munches for BDSM, obviously, um, in my area. But I'm very nervous to go. I'm nervous to reach out. I just, I guess I wonder like how I can protect my professional reputation, I guess, um, before I get into it anyway, while still exploring kinks and that community. So any advice for that would be great. We live in a sex-negative, kink-negative culture, and we live in increasingly sex-phobic, kink-phobic times. A teacher, someone who wants to be a teacher, getting outed for being kinky or for swinging or for having done porn, that usually means the teacher loses their job. Or we assume that that's what that means because when the teacher loses their job for their porn surfacing or they were outed because they're kinky or they were swinging – if they don't lose their job, we don't hear about it. It doesn't make the news. It doesn't land on our screens. So our frame of reference is a little out of whack. And I think our perception of the risk in cases like this, your case, what you're contemplating doing, can be really warped by dint of the fact that we hear about it when people lose their jobs. We don't hear about it when people don't lose their jobs. We don't hear about it when people are outed or exposed and they don't lose their jobs. We also don't hear about it when people who are teaching, teaching for years, are involved in the kink or swinger community and are never outed and consequently never have to worry about losing their jobs or having been outed. If you go to a munch in your small town, a little bit of that Cold War era mutual assured destruction comes into play. Yes, the people at that munch have the drop on you. They know that this person who lives in their small town is kinky, but you know that they're kinky. Everybody knows something about each other. 
that arguably, if people are closeted about being kinky, can be weaponized. And the agreement in this room is I am not going to press the button and blow up your life because I don't want you to press the button and blow up my life. So I think you could risk going to this munch. No risk, no reward. There's a certain kind of sex that you need to have, a certain kind of intimate, romantic connection that you need to feel sexually fulfilled. And this, the munch, is often the safest place for people who want to find their way into the kink scene, find the kinky people in the community who are responsible and trustworthy. It is the best route and the safest route. So I, I want to tell you to go to the munch because of MAD, because of mutual assured destruction. That should be some comfort. On the other hand, there are malicious shits everywhere. There could be some malicious shit that you meet at this munch who you get to know and you feel you can trust and you confide in them about your career and your concerns and your worries who then uses that against you, leverages that against you, attempts to manipulate you with that. Or you break up with that person and suddenly you have an angry, vindictive ex on your hands. But the angry, vindictive ex is a risk that even vanilla people run. And meeting somebody who's abusive, malicious, shitty, awful isn't just a concern for kinksters. It's also a concern for vanilla people. You could get on Christian Mingle right now and meet somebody who's awful. You could meet somebody who'd kill you. But your concern really does touch on the idea of the closet. This is a thing that you would like to keep private. This is a thing where other people have to know about it for you to live it, for you to have it. This thing that you would like to keep private, this thing you would like to keep secret. But so long as you have a secret, it can be used against you. And that secret, when you're living in a small town, potentially more consequential. That secret, when you have a career in education, potentially more explosive. My advice to you would be then to get the fuck out of that small town, to move to a bigger city where you'll have more safety in numbers. There'll be many, many, many more kinky people in that big city. And there's also the ability to be anonymous even within a kink scene and to have those things not overlap with your professional life. And considering that you want a career in education, I would urge you to err on the safe side and not share photos and not share videos. It's really tempting. It seems these days that nobody can have kinky sex without pausing to take video and photos of the amazing bondage work or whatever else is going on. You should be a no photo person because you're an educator, because you should be a no photo person. That should be a hard limit for you, not because you don't trust the people that you're with, but Pictures go sideways, they get out, they go stray, they get shared a little too easily. And those kinds of pictures, if they come out and they get connected to you and your students find them, that could end your career. So go to the munch, no pics. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old woman in a long-distance relationship and I've reached a breaking point with my boyfriend of three years, primarily related to two things. First, he tends to black out periodically and lose his control. And second, his way of dealing with conflict is to berate me, typically by saying things like you're a bad person or your parents should be ashamed of you. Our pattern has been that he'll have a major alcohol slip up that includes berating me. He'll feel guilty about it and apologize, but then nothing changes. Two weeks ago, while blacked out, he was punched in the face. No recollection of it. He called this his wake-up call, but then he called me last night drunk on the phone. And when I confronted him, he kept defending himself, saying that he only drank a few light beers rather than hard liquor 
and that that means he wasn't drunk. I love this man. I thought he was the closest to one that I was going to find, and I'm finding myself at a loss. I'm ready to start a family. I'm terrified of starting from scratch again at 31, and I just don't know what to do. The ticking of your biological clock is a terrible reason to have a baby with an abusive blackout drunk. Go to this guy. Tell him that you would like to make a life with him. You would like to have a family with him, but he's going to have to choose between you and family or alcohol. He's got to give it up. Sounds like he's an alcoholic. He has a drinking problem. He's got to stop drinking if he wants to be with you. You're only 31 years old. You have time. Many, many, many women are having children well into their 30s. Meghan Markle, Princess Meghan Markle is 37 and pregnant. You can do this in a few years. You can get out there and start over and find someone else. As I like to say, there's no settling down without some settling for, but settling for an abusive drunk, a blackout drunk who becomes verbally abusive when he's blackout drunk. Yeah, don't do that. Don't inflict that person on your children. You at 31 may be able to compartmentalize. You at 31 may be able to separate the person that your boyfriend is when he's drunk and abusive and scary from the loving person he is the rest of the time. Your small children will not be able to make that separation. They will not be able to compartmentalize in the same way. Now, to be clear, I don't think you should be compartmentalizing in this way. I don't think he deserves that pass. But if you decide to go in with him because you're worried about your biological maternal clock ticking away and make that baby, you aren't just welding yourself to this man for the rest of your life. Even if you aren't together, you're welding these children to this man. This child or children, plural, if you have more than one, clearly has a drinking problem and a drinking problem that unleashes some really ugly shit that he needs to get a handle on before he has children with you or anyone else. 31 is not 41. You have time. Don't settle for this guy. All right, we're going to take a quick break from the calls to have a conversation with Alexander Cheeves, sex and relationships columnist. He recently wrote a piece for The Advocate, The Dangerous Trend of LGBTQ Censorship on the Internet, and I wanted to talk with him about that piece. Hey, Alex, how are you? Hi, how are you doing? Good. Am I offending you? Is it Alex or Alexander? Are you one of those gay guys who wants the full first you, name? You can, you can call me whatever you want. Actually, like, I have a variety of different nicknames, so literally Alex is fine. Okay, that's, Alex. That's, that's totally great. So I'm sure most people in my audience have already heard the news, but for those who haven't, what did Tumblr do and why did Tumblr do it? Well, Tumblr is announcing a thorough ban on all adult content and adult media. And, you know, depending on who you ask, why they did it is a knee-jerk overreach in response to the verified fact that they did have child pornography on their site. A lot of people think it's corporate pressure from Apple. A lot of people think it's sort of a part of a larger trend of um, a crackdown on adult media across the Internet. And uh, I think it's all the above. I, I, I think the reason why they did it is to avoid a lawsuit and to stay on the App Store, the Apple App Store, and to not risk having child pornography. 
And, and to be clear, t- the, the the folks at Tumblr weren't uploading child pornography. They they don't allow child pornography, but some users were putting child pornography up on yeah. Tumblr sites, just as some users put child pornography just about anywhere on the internet. And Tumblr wasn't able to get that shit down as quickly as Apple would have liked them to, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is more of just a wide brush ban, hoping that along with child pornography, they I mean, along with child pornography, they'll sweep up everything else that's adult content related on Tumblr, which is the larger problem. And, and that's shocking considering that most people regard Tumblr as the place for porn blogs and adult content generally. I, I don't know. You know, when I hear somebody say, hey, did you check out that Tumblr blog? They're not talking about recipes. They're usually talking about no. pornography. I've only ever used Tumblr for porn. And I think most people are in the same position. They've only used Tumblr for porn. And in banning all adult content from Tumblr, that's a problem. And it's a particular problem for, for queers uh, and it's a particular problem for sex workers. You go into that in your piece. Can you unpack that quickly for my listeners? Yeah. Well, I spoke, I spoke with a lot of sex workers and, and, and service providers and escorts who use Tumblr along with a couple of other platforms to curate an audience, to upload original content, which is usually not safe for work, and to potentially find clients. It's a safer option than being on the street. You know, depending on the platform, you can vet clients, you can ask other sex workers about clients. And we, we, we just have enough data now to show that working on the street is so much more dangerous and, and opens you up to so much more violence than digital platforms. And now Tumblr is sort of joining the list of sites that are going to boot them out, you know, that are going to no longer be a viable option to do so. And it's FOSTA-SESTA. Congress passed the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act or the House version Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act. And it's chasing sex workers off of the internet. Well, yeah, I, I think I, I imagine that lawmakers generally probably assume that an escort is code word for sex trafficking. But the reality is that uh, you know, you know, I'm sure I'm sure that sex tra- trafficking happens all over the internet. Anti-sex work campaigners who you know found a easily duped sex negative queer phobic audience in Congress conflate yeah. sex work with sex trafficking, that anybody who's doing sex work is a victim of sex trafficking and vice versa, even though that we know that the yeah. vast majority of people who've been trafficked, over 90% of trafficking victims, aren't doing sex work. They're laboring in restaurants. They're laboring on uh, fishing ships. They're being exploited and trafficked in, in, in ways that nobody really cares to talk about because there's no hard-ons or orgasms involved or sex involved. The only kind of trafficking we hear about is sex trafficking. And there has been this campaign to to equate all sex work with sex trafficking and all sex workers yeah. are victims of trafficking and vice versa uh, and, and now and what blows my mind about this is the people who campaign against sex work say that they're concerned about the harms and dangers uh, that, that sex workers are exposed to but everything they do makes those harms and dangers greater. worse yeah well I mean I, I think that you know there's an uncomfortable like margin between between trafficking and, and, and sex work, because I mean, when, when you're on the street, you are at risk of being, you know, hurt by pimps or, or, or at the mercy of pimps, you are at the risk of street violence. And so uh, digital platforms actually give sex workers who are at risk of, you know, being victims to, to, to seedier and more underground industries, it actually gives them power to sort of control their own business. So, 
if anything, stripping these sites actually take away the tools for people to stop or, or to or to help themselves or to seek or to or to seek help or to help each to other to find a way out of yeah yeah to find a way out of out of uh, a more dangerous industry. So it it sort of silences and takes the people who are truly victims of trafficking or at risk of being victims of trafficking further away from the eyes of the public, further away from the law, further away from help. Uh, but that's not the only problem here. It wasn't just sex workers on Tumblr who were chased off with this decision. Your piece makes a, a really persuasive argument that queers, uh, people with minority sexual interests, marginalized sex communities, that they were able through Tumblr's particular kind of the website that it was to 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 make connections, to to find community, to find support, to congregate. Yeah, and. By, you know, chasing adult content off their site, Tumblr is making it harder for queers and, and people with other marginalized sexualities to connect, to find each other, to build community, to to share best practices and safety tips. Yeah, and that's, I mean, to me, that's dangerous just because inadequate sex education across the country has resulted in the fact that me and I imagine every other gay man I know found their identity and found information about sex via the Internet. Um, which, you know, is problematic, of course, because you're always sort of depending on faulty information or often faulty information. But still, like, we, we find communities, we find each other, we find playmates, and we find sort of the language to articulate who we are in our, in our community online. And when that goes, it might not be a devastating blow to people who are already out and already know where their community is, but the people who are in the closet, people who live in remote areas, people who live in the middle of, you know, you know, very, very rural areas um, without access to like the nearest weather bar or without access to a neighborhood, they'll hurt. They'll suffer from this just because Tumblr is for many people and was for many people sort of the gateway into kink and BDSM and fetish practices and different gender identities. And, 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 and that's gone now. And it, it impacts them the isolated among us the and, worst. And to be clear, you know, stumbling over BDSM porn on Tumblr doesn't instill an interest in BDSM. There's a mountain of research that shows that people go and find the porn that speaks to them. They don't find a particular porn genre and then adapt that kink. Tumblr didn't make people kinky. Tumblr was a yeah. place where kinky people could connect, find each other. And what I, you know, I did some looking around on Tumblr myself. What I found so what was so positive about Tumblr was these were all individual human beings who put up a page where they would share porn that spoke to them, where they would write about their own interests and practices, and they would connect with others. And it became an educational site. It wasn't just like this open oh, spigot of porn that everybody thought it was, that where the porn just poured out of it. It was a person behind each Tumblr page sharing the stuff that that, that appealed to them, but also – then, you know, answering questions, uh, providing resources and links, uh, posts about best practices. I remember a, a particular example that I'll give right now where someone put up a picture that they thought was hot of two guys in bondage and they were wearing sort of heavy irons and they were in this standing stress position and – you know, it went around a little bit and people were like, oh, that's hot. And then somebody deconstructed it in this long post about how dangerous this particular image was because, you know, if you pass out and people will pass out in a stress position um, and you mm -hmm. fall and you're wearing rigid, heavy irons, you will break your ankles. You will break your wrists. And somebody really went through 
you know, tearing the Dom, I guess, apart for putting these two subs in what was an unsafe position. And then that got passed around everywhere. So everybody who is at first aroused by this image then got the second blast, which educated. is like educated about why you shouldn't do this particular kind of bondage in this particular kind of way and what was unsafe and dangerous about it. And it was this educational, it was this teaching moment. And it all, un- yeah. and it all yeah. unspooled on this site that other people who haven't visited are just like, oh, that's just where people go to jack off. And it wasn't just that. Well, you know, when it happened, a lot of people in my immediate circle said, well, we're still going to be able to message each other on hookup apps. We're still going to have recon. We're still going to have a variety of different, you know, online sex websites. And my argument to that is it's really not the same because it's one thing to be able to message people who have a profile who you want to hook up with. Tumblr really wasn't that. It was actually curating interest for interest's sake. I mean, you weren't only messaging people who you wanted to have sex with people who were on the other side of the world. You were, you were, you were actually sharing ideas and sharing art and sharing creativity and sharing, you know, kinks and fetishes. And And that's a huge difference. And that's a vital difference because there really is no other platform that I can think of that, that I know of that does that same work. Is there something that's going to come along to take Tumblr's place? where people will be able to create these personal blogs, share what turns them on, but also answer questions, write, discuss best practices, discuss safety in the way people discussed it and share it on Tumblr? You know, Dan, right now, I, I, I don't know of a place like that. I mean, maybe I need to spend more time on the internet. I've worked in, you know, in an industry that sort of touches porn for a while. And so I know that a lot of models and a lot of, and a lot of porn stars, um, sort of have their public persona on Twitter. But Twitter, again, really doesn't do the same work that Tumblr does. It's really not a content sharing site. Twitter is generally it's how entities communicate to each other. It's how it's how figures talk to each other. It's not really it doesn't it doesn't really curate the same kind of space that Tumblr did. And so I know everybody's sort of like seeing Twitter as like one of the last spaces. Um but yeah, I know there really isn't um a platform right now that meets the same need. Alexander Chiefs, his article is The Dangerous Trend of LGBTQ Censorship on the Internet. It's at out.com. Please go read it. Hey, Alexander, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me, Dan. Hi, I had a quick situation. I recently reconnected with a next girlfriend from years ago, and we just talking as friends, and um, I had some stuff from therapy that I wanted to go over with her about when we had been together, and we're both in relationships. And she's married. I'm in a long-term relationship. Um, through talking, um, she remembered being with me and what it felt like and stuff. And we talked about what it would be like if we were together now, but kind of in a academic way. But I guess it reignited the feelings of what passion and romance should be like. And she talked talked to her husband about how she had feelings for me, and I have feelings for her too. But I'm, you know, we both want to stay in our relationships, and so they went to therapy. And her therapist is telling her that she has to stop talking to me completely. And I know that I'm biased, and I see his point of view, but I also think it's unfair because it was his neglect that put him there now. And I think that we can be responsible friends, even if there's still feelings there. And I don't. I don't. I think it's taking away her agency, but I don't know. So I was hoping to get a second opinion. I have a hunch. I have a hunch that it isn't the therapist who told her 
not to keep seeing you. It was the therapist who affirmed her position that it was a bad idea to keep seeing you. She doesn't want to keep seeing you, but she doesn't want to take responsibility for that. She doesn't want to hurt your feelings. So to get herself off the hook and to let you down easy, even though you both already let each other down long ago, she's telling you that her therapist told her not to keep seeing you. And it may be true. It may be true that her therapist told her not to keep seeing you. It is also possibly true that she told her therapist that she doesn't think she should keep seeing you. And he affirmed that. But she only gave you half of that story. She didn't give you the, I don't think I want to keep seeing you. I told it to my therapist. He agreed. All she's giving you is my therapist told me not to keep seeing you. And I agree with the therapist. I'm going to back up the therapist here. You say you still have feelings for each other, but you both want to stay in your current relationship. Well, hanging out with someone that you used to be with, that you have strong, unresolved feelings for, is a threat to her marriage. It's a threat to the relationship that you're in now. Finally, you say that you're in therapy. And you also say that you have lots of unresolved feelings about this relationship that you are still processing with your therapist, which has me wondering about the quality of the therapy that you're getting. I actually feel pretty good about the quality of the therapy that your girlfriend might be getting if her therapist told her not to see you anymore because I don't think that this would be a healthy, good relationship for you to pursue or a friendship that you could pursue in a healthy way, in a way that it wasn't a threat to your primary relationships on both sides. Her therapist wants to shut it down. You are going to see a therapist who is seemingly, and I'm inferring perhaps a great deal here, and if this isn't relevant, please ignore it, but you're going to see a therapist who is processing and processing and processing with you this relationship that ended however many years ago. There's therapy that resolves. There's therapy that helps you get the closure that you need, which is again, as I like to say and say constantly, closure is something you do for yourself. Sometimes you need to see a therapist to help you do that for yourself. There's therapy that does that, that resolves, that settles. And then there's therapy where there's just some other motherfucker in the room helping you pick at scabs and keep a wound open and fresh eternally. And I don't think that that's good therapy. You're seeing someone and you're just picking and picking and picking at scabs and nothing is resolved and there's never any closure. Yeah, you might want to see somebody else. You might want to ask your girlfriend's therapist for a reference. Hi, Dan. I'm a cisgendered bisexual woman in California. And recently I was texting with a guy who explicitly said that he was interested in anal sex and eating ass and all of that stuff. And it made me think, should I disclose the fact that I have hemorrhoids? I've had them since I was a teenager and a doctor told me that I didn't have to get them removed because they would probably just come back. So it's never really been an issue. None of my partners that have ever mentioned it or said anything about it. And I've had anal sex plenty of times. So I'm just wondering, like, if somebody explicitly is interested in ass stuff, should I let them know that I have hemorrhoids? Okay, we're going to pretend for a minute that this is who wants to be a millionaire. And I'm going to phone a friend. I am going to phone my friend, Philip with hemorrhoids. Hey, Philip, how are you? Hey, I'm good. I, I have hemorrhoids, I guess. <laughs> I'm sorry to introduce you that way. You have so much more in your life. You are so much more <laughs> than just your hemorrhoids. But you did share that with Thank me you. once, so I thought, I'd, I thought of you when I listened to this call. I, I just love that you thought of me. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, you're a gay dude, and 
you yeah. do butt stuff and you have had hemorrhoids mm-hmm. or have hemorrhoids. I don't know where, what's the state of your butt at the moment? Yes. Well, I should probably start by saying that so do you and, and so does everybody. Hemorrhoids are the name of the veins around your anus um, and internal to your anus. I also am like not in any way a doctor or a scientist or anything. Nor um, am I. Since I've, okay, great. So since I've had so much trouble with my hemorrhoids, I've just, you know, picked up uh, a little bit of knowledge or a thing or two about them. And so we all have them. It's just what those veins down around there are called. And just like every body, um, people have differently shaped hemorrhoids. People have different problems with hemorrhoids or no problem with those veins at all. Same with some people have varicose veins. Some people don't. It's just, it, it's, a, it's an effect of, uh, of diet. A lot of it has to do with genetics. So I was, I mean, you know, let, let's get personal. I've had an evolution of, of sexual behavior over the years. And for years and years and years, I was pretty much only a top. And it was during that time that I had the most difficulty with hemorrhoids. So it doesn't oh. necessarily have to do with um, trauma or activity or, you know, like how much like the Holland Tunnel your anus is. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's, it, it's just most of it has to do with uh, genetics and diet and stress and stuff like that. So when people say, oh, I have hemorrhoids, they don't mean, oh, I have the veins around my anus that everybody does. They mean I have a certain thing. A certain right. problem. Yeah, they mean they have inflamed or thrombosed hemorrhoids, which means that there's like a, a blood clot. It's basically like a stroke or an artery blockage or a heart attack in your ass, you know, which is like, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like an 80s heavy metal band, right? It's like a heart attack in your ass. So there's a, there's a blood clot basically in these veins around your anus for whatever reason. And because the blood can't get through, they become thrombosed or or full of blood that hardens. And that, you know, as you can imagine, is, is very, very, very painful. Um, and so then there are a number of treatments and options and things that you can do from ignore them until they go away, you know, the sort of like Republican solution to hemorrhoids, or you can like do any sort of amount of surgeries or, or invasive procedures or creams or things like this. You can use steroidal creams. There's all sorts of stuff you can do, including homeopathic stuff. And it all has varying degrees of efficacy, you know, and it also depends on the person and the mm-hmm. person's, you know, reaction. It's, it's very specific. They're individually tailored to each anus. Now, not everyone who has hemorrhoids has painful hemorrhoids. The, the caller mentions that she has hemorrhoids. She also says that she's been active anally, that she has experienced and enjoyed mm-hmm. anal intercourse despite having hemorrhoids. So it doesn't sound like she has one of those cases where it's too right. painful to go there. It sounds like her concern is she's talking to this guy. She's interested in meeting this guy. This guy has expressed in advance an interest in butt stuff doing butt stuff with her and she has hemorrhoids and perhaps for her, not a pain issue, but an aesthetic issue mm-hmm. that it's about well, her, her mean, appearance that she may be concerned. I mean, if, if she's in, if she's concerned about her opinion, well, there's two things here. There's the, should I disclose this, right? There's, should I disclose this? And then the possible concerns about the appearance of her asshole. So I would just say that, should I disclose this? I don't think she has any sort of moral obligation to uh, to disclose this to her sexual partner because it's not a thing you can give to somebody else. And, and it's just absolutely impossible. You're not going to catch hemorrhoids uh, unless you're like a body part severing serial killer. Like you're just not going to catch hemorrhoids. <laughs> it doesn't 
she she has no moral obligation to disclose this. Um, the sort of deeper issue, I think, is you know, does she feel comfortable with her own butthole? And you know, I would get. I would advise her to get really Oprah about her anus, like really love it, get a mirror out, decide what makes it hers. You know, I think every butthole is like a snowflake. And if she's got, you know, skin tags or hemorrhoids or anything that makes it interesting or specific, that's, you know, that's her anal fingerprint. I say, love it and go for it. And you know, he may, this dude may never even fucking notice. Like he may never, he'd just be so excited to be in there. They'll have no idea because how often do we know what our own butthole looks like? It's only those of us who have trauma or trouble with it who actually know what our buttholes look like mm-hmm. <laughs> or Instagram stars. But other than that, <laughs> yeah, the, the further no, up not. your own, the further up your own ass you are, the likely you are to be familiar with its appearance. Yeah, yeah the more familiar you are with it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but I don't. I know she has no obligation to to let him know about this if she would like to it probably just provides him an opportunity to be valiant and kind and say, Oh, that's no problem to me. I'll lick it anyway. You know, would she be obligated to disclose if the hemorrhoids in her instance were so painful that she couldn't do anal and he kept expressing an interest in anal. Is that the sort of thing where she might want to like head that off at the pass and just say, Oh, Hey, you keep bringing up butt stuff. Just so you know, I can't do butt stuff. I have painful hemorrhoids. So we're going to have to do front stuff. I, I think so. I mean, you know, you don't owe anybody an explanation for why you don't want to have sex with them, you know, or why you don't want to do a sexual thing with them. If she doesn't want to do it, that's enough. I think that's my opinion. But if she would like to say, Hey, you know, or reassure him because she actually likes this guy and would like to do other sexual stuff with him, say like, Hey, uh, it's not because of you. It's because I experience a lot of pain in that area. So can we talk about other options or, like she your butt. might also want to say, yeah, like, like, like my butt, my butt experienced a lot of pain. So we just, Oh no, no. I was saying like, I was saying that other options for her could be playing with his butt instead of her butt. Oh, I'm sorry. I naturally assumed we were talking about me. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, totally. Turn it around on him. Say like, Hey, while I'm consulting doctors and while I'm seeking other treatments, uh, I'm going to get my dildo and we're going to have fun with your butt. That's a, that's a great, yeah, totally. If he says no, and he doesn't give a reason why he doesn't want things in his butt, then she doesn't owe him any reasons why she doesn't want things in hers. My friend, Philip, thank you for jumping on the phone. Thank you for letting me phone a friend and letting it be you. I really appreciate it. (laughs) No problem. Take care. Hi, Dan. I've heard that if in a long-term relationship, you've never had a fight, it can be a sign of an unhealthy relationship. And I wanted to check with you to see if that was really true, because I'm not really sure about that. I'm always suspicious of people who say that they've never had a fight in their relationship, in their romantic relationship. I think it's a good idea to have a fight or two before you scramble your DNA together and have kids or adopt, before you get a mortgage, get a house, before you even cohabitate. A really good idea to have at least one fight so you can get a sense for how this person that you're considering partnering with for life processes conflict and anger and how you process your own anger when it's directed at this person who you love, who means a lot to you. You want them to see how you do it. You want to see how they do it because in a long, long, long ass term relationship, shit goes down. People have fights. I think when you're standing there in your new house with your two children 
and your partner is a really bad time to have your first fight and discover that your partner doesn't process conflict in a healthy way or that your partner is abusive or controlling or manipulative in a way that, yeah, you're going to want to know about before you scrabble your DNA together. You're going to want to know about before you sign that lease or mortgage. So yeah, you want to be with somebody who you fight with occasionally. All that said, there are people out there. I've heard of them where they're with somebody for a very long time, perhaps forever, and they rarely, if ever, fight. And the fights that they have had are minor, or at least they regard them as minor. Maybe somebody else in a different relationship would regard the conflict that they regarded as minor, as major. Who knows? We're not in that relationship, that low conflict. I'm not in that low conflict relationship, but I've heard of them. So that is a thing that can happen. I don't want people out there who are in low conflict relationships, who've had babies and mortgages with people that they've never really had a fight with to feel like I'm erasing you. I see you. But call or ask for my advice. My advice. Yeah, have a few fights. See how that goes. Then scramble your DNA together. Hey, Dan. Um, I've actually been a listener for 10 years and never thought I would be a caller. But here I am. I'm a 34-year-old female dating a 27-year-old male. Long distance for the past nine months, um, we both pursued the relationship pretty equally, and he made time to make long 10-hour drives to see me, even when it was only for 24 hours. He presented himself as a loving, caring guy with a great passion for his career and his family, and in July, he asked me to move in with him for the winter. He told me that he would work really hard for the relationship if I said yes. So I said yes. Last month, I spent the week at his sister's for Thanksgiving, and it went really, really well. He asked me to then spend Christmas at his parents' house. He even wanted to come with me to my parents' house, which is on the other side of the country. Then last week, I signed for our four-month lease before him, and it all kind of went downhill. That same day, he told me that he would only be in the apartment for half the time he thought because classes for work were going to be taking him out of state. He didn't tell me sooner because he was afraid that I would break up with him. I was naturally really upset. Uh, We don't get a lot of time together. And then the big bomb was last night when he told me that this relationship definitely had an end date. He professed that he would never fall in love with me because sometime in the next few years, he wants to go spend four years being a monk in Asia. He still wants me to go with him to his parents' house for Christmas and then move in with him the following week, I'm heartbroken and confused. The guy who told me that he would fight really hard for this relationship just put a timestamp on it with no concern for my feelings. And I should mention that this is his very first relationship. Uh, I don't know what to do. Do I pay thousands of dollars to get out of this lease? Do I move in with him knowing that there's an end date? Do I go to Christmas at his parents' house? I don't know what to do at this point. One of two things is going on here. Both of them are bad. Either he's telling the truth and he's really running away in four months to join the circus or become a monk or whatever the fuck it was, or he's hedging his bets. He's lying about that. Maybe there's some monk thing he could run off and do in Asia for a while. Maybe it falls roughly around that date and maybe he's thought about it, but he told you that. Because he wants a get out of this relationship free card if after you move in together, he decides that what worked as a long distance relationship doesn't work as an up close relationship. And he wants to be able to walk away from it scot free, 
without recrimination, without having to feel like the bad guy because he told you that he would have to go after four months very likely. And so you knew what you were signing up for when you came if he decides to go. But then if he decides not to go because the relationship is great and he has no desire to leave, then he stays and gets everything he wants in Yahtzee. That's the hedging the bets thing that I think he could be doing. But either way, either he's telling you the truth and he's really going to run off and join the monk circus or he's lying to you about running away and joining the monk circus because he wants a get out of it free card. Either way, he's an asshole. Either way, you shouldn't continue to see him. You should call his fucking bluff. You should say this is bullshit. You lied to me. You've misrepresented your interest in me. You basically conned me into signing a lease that now you're not even going to be there half the time. And, you know, the idea of me moving to where you were and us getting an apartment together was to be together and explore whether we had potential as a long-term relationship, as a committed long-term relationship. And now none of that is even possible because you're leaving? You're an asshole. And it may come out when you confront him that he was just bluffing. It may come out that he was hedging his bets. It may come out he just wanted that get out of relationship free card. And then you get to decide whether you want to be with someone who would play that kind of game, who would put you in this kind of pain. You can hear it in your voice. You are really hurt by the bullshit this asshole is pulling on you right now. Or you can walk away and break that lease and spend the money that you need to spend to get the asshole who's causing you so much pain, the pain you're in right now, out of your life. Personally, I think you should spend that money to get this asshole, this game-playing asshole, because again, whether he's telling the truth, whether it's a lie, he's playing games, worth it to get this game-playing asshole the fuck out of your life. All right, before we get to your feedback calls, some of your feedback tweets. Scott McHugh tweets, screw you, fake Dan Savage. Listen to this week's episode of the Savage Lovecast, and I am disgusted by the thought of doggity-style sex. What kind of filth are you spreading? Barry Newton tweets, listening to back episodes of the hashtag Savage Lovecast, and Dan is saying how excited he is about the impending end of the George W. Bush administration. Oh, poor, poor 2007, if you only knew what was about to come into your world. Twyla Haggerty tweets, hey, fake Dan Savage, people of color have explained why black lives matter now. It's time for all of us shitty white people to use our privilege to explain to other shitty white people why black lives matter. Probably not a great idea to ask black listeners to solve another shitty white person's problem. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your feedback calls. Hi, my name is Liz. I'm a longtime listener. I'm a Magnum subscriber. I'm just calling in response to the latest show where you responded to a woman who was in her 70s saying that she was looking to get fucked. And I felt like your response was a little bit depressing. In my experience, I've noticed a lot of older people who actually um, are still flirtatious, still hooking up. I recently volunteered at a homeless shelter where people were in their 70s. And they were super flirtatious with each other. And it was really nice to see because it goes against what you sort of see in the mainstream media regarding sexuality in later years. Also, my grandmother, who was 93 when she died, was still hooking up with a guy who was 20 years younger than her when she was 92. So much so that her home caretakers were actually put off by how sexual they were. Also, there's a lot of porn that has older ladies in it. 
I myself am in my 40s and I'm often pursued by men who are much younger than me. So anyway, I just want to put that out there as a counter perspective and maybe uh, to offer a little bit of hope to the woman in her 70s. Hey, Dan, I'm calling in response to episode 634, the woman who's asking about a strap-on for her man. Since, uh, I don't know, the early 90s, I got a strap-on harness at Good Vibes in San Francisco, and I wear a second penis for double penetration on my partner or on the odd threesome where I stack up partners and double penetrate both of them. Harness isn't just for flaccidity or inability to perform or post-orgasmic bliss. It's for every day. Hi, Dan. This is a response to the caller in episode 634 who was feeling reluctant about asking her neighbor out on a date. The confidence that you have to even think about asking your neighbor out sort of betrays more confidence than your call. So I think you've actually got something here that you can work with. Confidence is super hot. So if you've got that level of confidence to ask somebody out, that's already a good thing. And especially so in breeder land, when a gal has the confidence to ask the guy out, that is super hot. So have some faith, have some belief. People dig that. Uh, and then finally, strategically, maybe instead of just asking them out across the fence, maybe have like a little gathering. You know, it's not like you and all your buddies. It's like kind of everybody that maybe doesn't know each other all that well. And then you can kind of, you know, chat them up. And then on the basis of that, maybe later, a day or two, you can say, hey, you know, I really enjoyed talking to you at this gathering we had. And uh, would you maybe want to go out with a, you know, for a coffee or something like that? Anyway, confidence itself. Go for it, girl. Good luck. Before we leave it there, we want to thank Tim and Katie from the Popovers for our theme song and for the Christmas versions of our theme song. We appreciate it so much. Tim, you are still very much loved and very much missed. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. I have a bunch of live shows coming up in the new year in Portland, Oregon, Vancouver, British Columbia, Seattle, Washington, Denver, Colorado, San Francisco, Chicago, Madison, and Minneapolis. Go to savagelovecast.com and click on events for dates and for tickets. It's Christmas. It's not too late. If you need one more thing for the very special Savage Lovecast listener on your list, you can go to savagelovecast.com and click on gift and gift them the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. Twice as long and no ads. That's the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can gift at savagelovecast.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Alexander Cheeves on Twitter at BadAlexCheeves. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hertunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.